Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Claudia Aguirre. Claudia is a PhD in neuroscience and is a mind-body expert, speaker, and advisor. Claudia travels the world lecturing on a broad range of topics from neuroscience to skincare and everything under the wellness umbrella with a focus on longevity, skin health, and women's health, including menopause, endo, dementia, hormones, and more. Hi, Claudia. How are you? Hi, Valerie. Good. How are you? Good. I am so excited and I have to admit a little nervous to talk to you today. Um, we had a, um, a company meeting today um, with my agency and I told everyone I was interviewing you and how intimidated I was just because, um, you know, what you do seems like, you know, so profound and important and I just hope that my questions can live up to, you know, what you bring to the table. Yeah, yeah, we'll have a great conversation. (laughs) Fantastic. Awesome. Well, um, you know, before um, we get started, you know, I was actually asking everyone I know, um, okay, guys, I'm talking to someone who is a neuroscientist tomorrow. Help me. Like, what do you want to know? You know, and it's interesting because some of the questions that people come back with are like some of the most basic things. But I just think that a lot of people out there don't know a lot about neuro um, neuroscience. And I think this is a really awesome opportunity to educate, you know, some people that are listening um, that could be really inspired by the field that you're in. And so I'm really excited to ask some of those questions, but um, we'll see where it goes. Right. I'm thrilled about all things neuro. So hopefully I can instill some, you know, excitement into the listeners. Fantastic. So before we get started, um, just tell us, um, you know, what is neuroscience? Just in your own words, like what is it? And, um, you know, tell us kind of how you practice it every day. Okay. I practice it very differently than, than the typical neuroscientist. So I am a neuroscientist. I have a PhD in neuroscience. Neuroscience is the study of the brain and the mind, Um, things that we tend to separate in science because at the end of the day, you can think about the brain and the thinking process is your mind, if that makes sense. The brain is the mechanisms, the mechanics of it all, the, the cells, the, you know, the connections, the neurons, synapses, all of that great stuff. Um, Electricity, you know, and biology and blood and all the things that are involved. In the mind, um, a little bit more psychological. So, you know, how we think, how we connect, how we inspire, how we love, all of those emotions. Um, They're not just the brain, because we cannot disconnect our brain from the body. So my my title, you know, is I'm a neuroscientist, but I'm also a mind-body expert because we are bringing back the concept of the mind-body as a unit rather than a disconnected series of organs um, that Western medicine has, you know, separated for speciality, which is good in a way, but it also has countered how we think of ourselves and our bodies. So, so I bring in the whole body to the equation of mind, which um, the equation of 
brain and mind, which might be different um, if you ask a, you know, a neurochemist or, you know, I'm a molecular neurobiologist by training. Um, so I study the science of how, you know, the brain interacts um, with cells and, and, and different agents. But um, overall, it's the science of everything. If you think about you as a human, like it's the science of everything from your past generations, trauma can get passed down through generations. So that affects your biology all the way through to um, what you put on your skin can also affect your mind, how you look, makeup, you know, makeup has been around since the ancient civilizations. So what that does to you psychologically is also a mind issue. So I think of neuroscience as everything. It's kind of like the study of us, which is the study of everything. Wow. The study of us. That's, I just got <laughs> chills when you said that, because that really encompasses like everything that matters, right? Exactly. Um, so is psychology a big part of this? And is that like part of your training, like understanding, because you talked obviously a lot about emotion and, mm -hmm. you know, all of the things that your brain kind of you know, obviously as your CPU kind of controls and all of those things that come out of it. So understanding, you know, how people feel and the, and the, um, decisions they make, I mean, is psychology a part of your study? Definitely. Um, I think psychology was the, for me, was like the beginning of my interest in neuroscience because like as a, most kids, I didn't really understand what neuroscience was either. Um, but I knew that I liked people's behaviors and kind of observing them and I would like be you know like at home on a sick day and I watched this show called The Human Animal um, it was narrated by Desmond Morris I was like wow that's so interesting like why people do things like why they touch or you know why they laugh or how they do it and so but I wanted to know more and that's where neuroscience comes in is like this is exactly how it happens these are the cells that are involved and like the, ele the electrical inputs um and you know the order of the mechanisms, like that's how it works. And so I think from a curiosity perspective, uh, anthropology, sociology, and psychology are all you know related to us as a human species. But then neuroscience gets into like the nitty gritty, like this is this is the mechanisms. Awesome. And so when you walk in a room and you introduce yourself, and someone asks you what you do, and you say, "I'm a neuroscientist." What's the reaction you get? Just because when when I heard you, I when I heard you were in neuroscience, I was like, wow, what a badass. That is like, that seems like the coolest job ever. Yeah. I mean, I do love it. Um, earlier on, I, you know, I would say, and people would be like, uh, you know, are you sure? Like, like, do you really what what does that mean? Um, I don't necessarily look like I live in a lab. Um and I didn't want to. And I think that's been my biggest career shift is doing something that I felt comfortable in from 100% and not just like, I love the science, but I am i don't love a lot of the science making, um, you know, for, for people out there. I, I do a lot of talks at universities on like for students that want to do something different with their career. That's me. Like I did something wildly different. Um, so the reaction that most people, if it's like a social setting, people are going to be like, oh, okay and then a lot of times there's not a lot of follow-up because they don't know, they don't know how to follow that up um but other times people are curious and they're like what does that mean like what do you do are you often pe people think I'm a neurologist which is a medical doctor that cuts open uh you know brains and that's not me I study the theories 
behind all of that. So I'm not in a in a clinic. I am not diagnosing people. So that's psychologists. I am not, um, you know, a surgeon. So I'm not cutting tumors out. I am studying the science of the mind. So you're not dealing with people individually. You're dealing with like bigger theories that you can bring to the table to educate people. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And if I was still in academia, I would be, you know, teaching about that. But I never went into academia. I left academia once I got my degree and went straight into the beauty industry. Um, so that that's a big change of what I do on my day to day. Understood. Okay, so let's um, let's go back a little because I want to hear about what sparked you to be excited about, you know, a career in um, neuroscience. So you were born in Peru and raised in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, I just want to understand, like, at what point in was there a moment in your childhood that something that sparked you to maybe even think about something even close to this as a potential career? Or what point in your um, adolescence did this even come up? Yeah, like I said, you know, as a kid, I didn't, I didn't know much about at all about this field. Um, I don't have neuroscientists in my in my family. Um, I was just interested. My mom studied psychology, and I think that was a big part of it. Um, she was, you know, teaching and and, but she didn't really talk about it that much. Um, so I think it was just, you know, what I was exposed to growing up in LA and just different cultures and so many different people. Um, you know, there were Korean kids in my school that I had never been exposed to in Peru. And so, you know, eat, eating like seaweed, I'm like, wow, that's so interesting. I think I was just a curious child and I wanted to know the whys of things like, but why does that happen? And, um, and that just kind of slowly led to general science, but I am like, I'm not a physical science person, you know, like math and chemistry and physics, they were not my friends um, growing up. So I was not, I was a writer. I was an English major to start with. Um, I studied languages. Um, I, I obviously speak English and Spanish, but I also studied French. Um, and so, and I loved history. And so a lot of my courses in high school were, you know, all the advanced um, college level classes. And I also did well, like I did enough to get by, you know, in calculus and all that stuff. But I was more enthralled by history and, and literature and all of that. Um, and so I think, you know, at some point I wanted to be a doctor and I thought that was a good career, but I wanted, you know, a different path to it. So I was pre-med at UCLA um, and just, you know, the more fascinating courses for me were the upper level neuroscience courses. Um, at, you know, in psychology, when I studied that in high school, I thought that's a really interesting area. Like, let me explore that. Right. So that kind of led to to neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So you just um, touched on something really interesting. You said that you are kind of studying the why behind things, mm -hmm. but do you, I'm going to see if I can like ask this question in a way that's going to make sense. Do you study it from like a physical perspective of what's actually happening in the brain or more of like a hypothetical, like, I don't know if the word is hypothetical, like a more, um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Just, is it a physical thing that you're looking for? Like, this is what happens in the brain. Like these cells do this when this happens, or is it something different? It's actually both. I think I didn't know what you're trying to get to with the second point. It's a, it, science is a creative process because in order to even graduate, you have to invent something that nobody has ever done before. Um, and I don't mean like an invention that you patent, but like an idea. 
So um, it starts with an idea of like, could, you know, it could be a disease related thing, or it could just be a basic thing like, um, you know, a behavior or a physical manifestation, um, which is what I do. You know, I look a lot into the body, but for example, yawning, um, I always thought like, do we even really know why we yawn? You know, like, why is yawning so contagious? Um, you know, these are like initial questions. And then you dig into it with the physical. So like what happens in the mouth and then the tongue? And then how does that relay messages back to the brain? And where in the brain does that live? And what does the brain do with that information? So that's when you can get into the physical changes. Um, and as I'm saying this, I am sure that people out there that have even just heard the word yawn and yawning will start to yawn because it is this such a highly conserved behavior we have. I even did a TED video with this and it was really, really popular. You could just Google, you know, TED, Claudia yawning and you'll find it. Um, so yeah, so I think it's both, you know, it starts with an, a theory, an idea, or just like, I wonder if there's a lot uh, we know about this and then the physical work. And at this point, because I'm not in a lab, I don't do the physical work, but I dig for the physical work to get an understanding. Got it. And so you said that you have to kind of um, come up with a new idea or an invent an idea um, to graduate. Is that what you said? Yeah, so, that's that's basically your thesis. Yeah. So what, so what did you come up with? What was your thesis about? So my thesis, not to get too technical, but my thesis is about um, the interactions between specific female hormones, estrogens and progesterone in the brain and how they protect the brain from neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, um, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's, things like that. So we have these things called neurodegenerative diseases, which means that as we age and as we live with this disease, it gets worse. Um, it, it attacks the brain. And um, hormones, I think a lot of people still don't know, hormones are not just produced where you think they are. So like estrogen, for example, is kind of a misnomer. Um, we don't, we in science know that it's not just estrogen, it's a family of compounds, the biggest of which is actually estradiol. Estradiol is the main, you know, hormone produced by the ovaries um, for women but it's also produced by the brain and it's produced by the brain for the brain for different reasons that have nothing to do with your period. Um, same thing with testosterone. It's made by the brain. It's made by the skin. It's made by the gonads. Um, so that was a really, you know, that was my thesis work was how does this work? Because, and the reason I was studying is because more, you know, like a third, um, two thirds of people that get Alzheimer's disease are women. And why is that? You know, is it there's got to be something there? It's not just, you know, aging. So there's got to be something to do with the difference between men and females. And this is obviously due to the menopause. And so why does the menopause like result in such a change in the brain? And what can we do about it? And so there were these studies about like women's health initiative studies um, that looked at the effects of certain kinds of birth controls and, and hormone replacement therapy, but that led to potential cancer risk. And so my work was on how can we possibly develop a therapy for women that are going through menopause that's not going to give them cancer? Okay. I'm absolutely in awe of you. <laughs> I mean, wow. I mean, just, it just sounds like such important work, you know, it feels like, oh, um, wow, I need to figure out how to do something very important in this world. <laughs> 
after hearing that. So very, very cool. So you, um, you just touched on the fact that you, you know, speak at many universities, you do global wellness summits. I know you've spoken at Stanford and other, you know, very renowned, um, universities. Um, I actually listened, um, to one of your, um, talks, um, last night and, you know, you were, you were touching on, you know, something that I care deeply about. And we, we talked about this before, but this idea of emotions and feelings and how things make you feel. And it was so interesting because um, in one of your talks, you played a piece of music. Um, I think you played a couple of things. You played a piece by Mozart and another piece by Adele. And um, you talked about, um, you know, a little bit about why music or how music can make you emotional. I think we can all relate to the fact of, you know, when you hear a song and it like puts you back in a, in a second to a place in your, you know, your past 20 years ago, um, there's such a visceral reaction to music. But can you just, you know, for those who are listening, like explain like how, the, you know, how the brain works when you listen to a piece of music and, you know, how that process works? Yeah, for sure. So um, that's kind of another area that I'm really interested in is, is sound and the brain. And with sound comes obviously music because it's harmonic. Um, and with music, it, you know, we can break music down into the specific sounds too and just start very basic. Specific sounds definitely have an effect on our brain. Obviously we hear and we need to hear for survival, but also there's this like other level, right? It's not just for surviving, but it's for thriving. Um, and that's that top of the pyramid kind of stuff where what can we, you know, how do we, manipulate these sounds to make them really beautiful for our soul. Um, and that's music. And um, people have been composing music since probably the beginning of time when they started to find rhythm. And I think music from a very basic um, perspective starts with rhythm and bass. And, um, and it's probably because that's how we started, you know, in the womb too. Just to a little side caveat, um, the first part of the cochlea, which is our inner ear, to develop starts with the low bass sounds. And as we get older in the womb, then we start to recognize high frequency sounds. So low frequency is really important, I think, personally, for our, our health and wellness. Um, how it works in the brain is a little different. So um, if you listen to something like birds chirping, it, it there's science showing that that's a relaxing kind of sound, that water flowing is a very relaxing sound. Because if you think of our evolution, like that means life, it means that we can access water, we can access, it's a safe place because the birds are chirping. Because when there's no bird chirping, something's going on and you better get out of there. Um, it's too quiet. <laughs> so if there's animals kind of, you know, it's like a sense of relaxation because of our evolution on this planet. Um, as we've synthesized sounds, um, we can create, you know, feeling and emotion based on how, how we do the harmonics and the, and the melodies. And that's where like human created music, um, can also have an effect on the brain. And the interesting thing about the brain is that when you hear sounds like um, animals or human speech, that goes to a different part of the brain than music. So in a way, like we are wired for music inherently. Um, we have a different wiring um, to music than for just basic sounds or sounds in nature or speech. So that's really interesting to know because that means that um, there's a spot in our brain for music. So you're saying that the brain processes music differently than other sounds? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Never knew that. Super <laughs> awesome. Just going back to this idea of emotion. 
because um, we talk a lot about it, obviously, at Wu. I read a, a stat that, you know, nine, I think over 90% of um, human decisions are made on emotion. And I just want to understand, again, if there's a way for you to kind of break down, um, you know, what's happening in the brain when you feel different emotions. You know, obviously, I think a lot of people learn about when you're scared, there's, you know, something that's released in your body. But is there something that happens differently for every emotion that we feel? Is there some different kind of reaction that's happening in the brain? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's important to first note that that emotions and feelings are, are highly complex. Um, so, you know, we can break it down, but it is such a complex thing um, and it is very personal, too based on a personal experience. And so what is a, what is fearful for someone might not be fearful for somebody else. Um, there's definitely specific routes that, you know, happen in the brain when there's something scary. When you see something, um, you know, that is frightening, like an animal about to attack you, most people are scared. And um, that does send, you know, the, the fight or flight response um, happens. So your, your adrenaline rushes, cortisol is released, you, your body changes so that you can run away. And it's not time to like sit there and, you know, grow hair and, and ovulate like that's not going to happen when you're stressed. Um, so stress is a big part of fear. Um, fear can be what we call conditioned, which means it can be learned um, and it could be sort of like ingrained into memory um, so that you have irrational fears and things like that because you have associated it with a specific memory. You can also do that potentially, why not, with happiness. You know, um, you can correlate that feeling of happiness with um, memory and specific sounds that might make you feel good. You mentioned, you know, like sometimes it just takes you back. That's memory, right? Like that's you've activated, like, uh, as we, as you might have seen in TikTok, I don't know, like you unlock the core memory, um, which means yeah. that, you know, the specific sound is, is taking you to that spot. And it's a really good place um, if you have, you know, good emotions about it. Another important thing is emotions are not just in the brain because they are the body. If you, you use the word feel, and we can't technically feel without our body. Um, our body is there for us to send the, the signal of feeling back up into the brain. So it is a complete like brain body unit situation where we feel with our body too. Um, when you have a heartache, you know, just think of the linguistics of our language, you know, like a heartache, it literally, it can hurt you here in your chest. Um, if you, if you're feeling emotional, it, you feel it in your body, in your chest, in your nose, in your, you know, in, in a lot of places of your body, in your stomach. Um, so our visceral body, you know, the organs inside, they're also connected to all of the chemicals that are, are you know, released and their neurohormones, you know, it could be cortisol for stress. It could be oxytocin for connection. Um, uh, you know, a mother's bond to a baby, lots of oxytocin is released. And so, you know, the smell of the baby will then trigger that or like the sound of a baby. And this is a very, very like biological thing. A, a sound of a newborn baby to a new mom will trigger lactation. Um, and so you're, you know, you will release milk just because a baby is crying. Um, and so sounds are really important. Yeah. For our brain and our body. Absolutely. And you talk, you touch on stress, obviously something on everyone's mind, especially in today's world. And I saw in one of your talks, you showed um, some image or an image 
of um, a man um, before he went to um, war, and I think it was in Afghanistan, and then kind of when he came out over kind of a short short period of time, and the visual was just like, wow, you know, it wasn't like that he got physically hurt, but he obviously went through something very, you know, mental, mm-hmm. um, you know. So talk a little bit about like how stress, because you you talk about this mind and body connection and how how intertwined they are. And I think that's that like summed it up so perfectly and made me understand it. But talk a little bit about that. Yes. So again, like when we think of stress, we were always thinking of like what's going on in our brain and, you know, taking things to reduce anxiety and stress and depression and all that. But it is a very body thing as well, um, because the you're feeling it in your body. You're feeling like your stomach or your heart racing or you're sweating, um, your palms, all of these things are happening in the body. Um, the stress response is a necessary response. So we don't, we're never going to get rid of stress, first of all. And so the, the goal isn't to to try to get rid of stress in your life because that's impossible. The goal is to become resilient to the stress. And um, we have something in neuroscience in particular called um, an idea called allostatic load. And what that means is that allostasis is like this this homeostasis, this equilibrium of like you can handle stress um, and until it gets to a point where it's overloaded and the body and brain physically become overwhelmed and stop functioning as well. So that's what happens is like, whether it's your skin or your gut or your mind, um, specific, you know, areas are more prone for different people. Some people get butterflies in their stomach and if they get super stressed, they might get an ulcer. Some people get, you know, a little like itchiness on their skin. And if it gets overwhelming, they might get rashes. And so I feel like some some people have different targets of stress in their body. Um, and so how that works in in like from a biology perspective is you have this stress, it triggers the stress fight or flight response, which is a mind body thing, starts in the hypothalamus, releasing hormones, pituitary, adrenal glands, and then all the hormones are released. And, you know, you're trying to get away from this danger. But we live in a a place, in a society, in a world with constant stress and chronic stress. And so when the stress becomes chronic every day, on and on and on and on, then the body and brain brain can break down and that can lead to um, disease. Like it's shown that it can definitely lead to disease, even cancer, um, because of chronic stress. And the reason is because of inflammation. Um, So you're inflaming the body and brain constantly and the inflammation doesn't calm down. Um, And and it's up to you as a person to calm that inflammation down. I know it's out of our hands to have stress, but we have the power to reduce the, the toll that it takes on our bodies. Right. So stress can kill you is what you're saying. Yes, unfortunately, yes. Um, and, and it does. If you look at, um, I, I've done so much random research, but the salmon, the fish, they physically, like they die because of stress. Oh, so wow. they, they spawn, they go up the river to spawn and, you know, they have their eggs and everything. But because that journey is so stressful, they die at the end. <laughs> and that's the reason why salmon die, which is very crazy. But um yeah, you'll see a bit of it in nature, um, but we as humans obviously have such a huge amount of psychological stress um, that we can live with it for some time, but yes, stress can kill. It's interesting. You brought up something else that um, I talked to. I have two young, I have two teenage daughters and I, I always talk to them about 
you know, there's there, and maybe this is me trying to be my own version of a neuroscientist, but I was telling them that there's their, their heart and, and their mind. And then there's also their gut. And I always tell them that I want them to trust their gut more than the other two, just because I have found in my life that when I, anytime my gut like kind of reacts and tells me something's wrong, it, it usually sometimes um, happens before my brain does it. Um, it's, and I don't know if there's like some sort of a science behind that idea of like, follow your gut. Is there any connection in neuroscience about that? That is so fascinating. Um, I haven't seen specifically, and I think I think there should be, because you're right. Like our intuition comes from somewhere and it's it's a lot of things it's experience and it's um it's where we are at the moment but there's there is a field called neurophenomenology and it's sort of like the study of the phenomena that we experience sometimes it's like how you feel when someone's in the room without seeing them you could just you know you turn around and you didn't like necessarily feel anything but it there's something there in our brain that we haven't tapped into and that really is fascinating and intriguing and I think this could be part of it it's like how do we know what to do sometimes yeah maybe maybe I could write my thesis on on the the brain relationship (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and that's a big part of it too like my own personal career I've just gone on gut feeling because I've gone I only go into uncharted territory um which is interesting for me and almost like exclusively has to be uncharted um but yeah so it's all about gut because there's no way to hold on to anything there's no experience right so I'm embarrassed to tell you this but I last night I was googling what should I ask a neuroscientist (laughs) and one of the things that came up which was totally a shock to me was that this idea of like right, right brain and left brain is, mm. is kind of a myth. Yeah. Is that true? Yes. Oh my <laughs> gosh. What? I, my whole yeah. life, I've thought that that was real. <laughs> tell me, tell me what is, what's going on with that? Um, it, you know, it came from some studies that were trying to compartmentalize the hemispheres, but there's no real scientific truth behind the idea that somebody is left brain and right brain, like especially creativity. Um, and I've written about this. So the the concept of creativity is being able to think, uh, it's called divergent thinking. So when you have a problem, can you get sort of out of the box, right? And think that way. In order for the brain to be creative, it needs the more communication. It needs more communication between the left and right hemispheres. So the more your hemispheres are connected, the more you're able to have creative thinking. So if I, so if we, if we, this is gross, but if we cut up a bunch of people's brains that were creatives versus people that were like really good at math, would Mm -hmm. you see that the architecture of their brain, there was similarities in the architectures of their brains? Um, Okay, so it, from a science perspective, like we would probably see math, especially if they're like a mathematician, like a really interesting one, as a creative person because um, they are solving things that have not been solved before. So inherently, it's a very creative process to to think of something new. Um, so, you know, because it's in the science doesn't mean it's not like because it's not an art, art art can be very subjective to society also. Um, and so a lot of this, especially when it comes to things that are, like I talked in that um, talk that you mentioned earlier about music, um, there's there's a societal effect on what we think of as beautiful or artistic. Um, but from like just this biology perspective, 
yes, if somebody has the specific kind of thinking process, then they would look the same, whether they're a mathematician or like an abstract artist. But um, if somebody, there is specific specialization in the brain, right? So like in the left brain, you have more words. Like if you're a writer, you probably have a better, you know, area in that sense. Um, pianists have much bigger area of the brain devoted to their fingers more than like somebody else. And so the more you specialize, the more you you grow specific areas, especially when it's a physical thing, like a body thing. Um, is, but, it a, is it a predisposition? Like, are you born with something in your brain that is stronger than somebody else not, or is it developed? I think it's both. Um, we haven't gotten to like the genetics of it yet. Um, because again, it's, such, it, it's a little controversial to think about like what makes somebody special right what makes somebody better or creative or this or that so like it's it's hard to put that into like an objective form but um I think it's both because I think with that comes practice it's probably easier for some people to think differently I think and I think that might come from genetics it might also come from experience but like early life experience because when you are allowed to have creative thoughts when you're allowed to daydream as a small child um, when you're allowed to be bored not allowed but like you should be bored um, if you're always stimulated with you know devices and this and that then you don't feel the boredom and I think a lot of the creative process happens in the time when the brain is in a little bit of an idle state um, which means that you're you're not necessarily thinking about it so that's why a lot of people say oh wait I have my greatest thoughts in the shower you know because you're not like focused on too many things um, how would you explain I, I've been watching this one guy on TikTok talk and um, his daughter, his daughter um, shows that she can play him like a, a piece of music. And then within like 10 seconds, he can play it on the piano perfectly with never hearing the song. Like, how does the brain do that? Like what, <laughs> what is happening in that? I mean, it feels like magic. It feels like hocus pocus. Like what explain, explain a little bit of how that works. Well, I'm not, I'm sorry to say that I'm not sure exactly how that works. I haven't seen like a specific process because it is so independent, like it's so unique. Um, when I was little, I used to play by ear um, and I would like listen to, I don't know, like some hip hop and I could play it on the piano, <laughs> but I've never taken a lesson. Um, so okay. I think you're one of those people that can do that. <laughs> uh, I used to. Yeah. Like right now, cause I have a toddler, like I'll play music that somebody says um you it has to be tunes that are like really simple for me because I, like I said I never studied it but I can play it on like his little xylophone um you know songs like Mary had a little lamb or happy birthday or very basic things I think that's probably just something like a like it's a talent right and some people have specific talents I haven't seen specific studies on it um so I can't tell you exactly what's going on I think it's a matter of like him knowing inherently what tunes are what and just clicking that in his brain. And musicians are so interesting because like, yes, if you probably cut open their brain, like the brain is different. A musician has that part of the brain developed to music, just much more developed. Um, a lot of them are born that way. You know, Mozart was a, a child. Um, a lot of the singers these days, they're born with that talent. And, you know, that's just so interesting. Like, I wish I had that kind of talent, but um, I think you just have to be born with it. Right. So you touched on something else that was super interesting that I wanted to talk about. And that is, um, you know, this idea of technology and being bored and stimulation. 
And um, I went on a, a walk with my husband the other day and he's like, leave your phone at home. And I was like, he's like, cause you always just check it and it annoys me while we're on a walk. And I said, fine. And it's, it's interesting because we're, we're getting to a point as a society when you're not holding your phone that you feel like something's wrong. It's almost like your brain has been rewired. It's, you know, it's, it's clearly an addiction, right? And so I'd love to hear, you know, about, um, from your perspective about how technology is like altering our brains and how they work. Cause you know, now your phone is almost like your second brain, right? It's almost like your CPU, your window to the world, you take it away. And there's just this tremendous sense of loss that you 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 can't like function. Yeah. And it's crazy because there's this like physical device that's almost becoming like something that we walk around and hold all the time. Look at me, I'm holding it right now, um, you know, as part of an extension of our body. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yes. All of those little points are so fascinating. I mean, the, thanks for bringing all that up. It's so interesting. Um, the last thing you said was like extension of your body. So like we have a brain that is so good at extending our physical barrier of our body. Like when you're driving and you're going under a bridge and you kind of go like that, you know, like you're not going to hit your head. You're not going to duck. You, you duck. I, if you, you can't see me, but you, I'm, I'm showing how like you duck when you're going under a bridge or like if, if you're watching a game and you kind of move to the side to side, um, you're not in the game. You're not going to hit your head on the bridge. But we do that because we have ex- extended our body to our tools uh-huh. and so that we had to do that when we were like you know just starting off in this world like we we started to use tools and so we had to learn how to how does the brain get from like this is my hand and I can feel my hand to like now I put a fork in it and now I know what the end of the fork is like that's a very sophisticated process but we've been so good at it with our tools that we can now do it like psychologically, like with our devices too. Like that is now my extension. Um, and because we're so good at it, like if we become dependent on it, then it's like you lost your arm, right? Like it becomes very like, I don't, I cannot function without this. Um, you just have to retrain your brain because we have been wired for wiring with everything, connecting our number one I think human trait is connection. We are great at it, um, but we're also good at connecting with the wrong things sometimes, um, addiction, et cetera. So that's what we're so good at is connecting. So if we're connected to our device um, in you know a matter of years, we will be connected to like the metaverse. We will, because it'll be so easy to not just have a physical device because we'll just be all connected. Um, so I think that's coming. Um, but there are, you know, some some science. There's some science out there that shows like how it could be detrimental. Um, ha- having this dependency on technology, um, there's pros and cons for sure. But is, are, yeah. is technology helping us f- be more connected or less connected? I think in a way both, and that's why it's complicated because we have never been able to connect with as many people as we are now. You could, everybody's a phone call away. Basically you can know what's happening in Egypt and, you know, in Southeast Asia, like you just in minutes, because you just, everyone is on there at some point. So you just have to go on Twitter or you just have to, you know, like ask your friends and WhatsApp. And so everyone is connected. So in that sense, it's good because information flows extremely fast. Um, in the sense where like you can't appreciate our natural world, then that's probably a detriment to us because we, 
you know, we thrive on this natural world. And so when we're indoors all the time, exposed to artificial things, artificial lights and artificial this and that, um, then yes, we're being deprived from our natural state. Wow. All right. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, so you have found this incredibly interesting niche um, in your practice um, that has to do with wellness and skincare. Tell us about that, how you got into it and kind of what you do in that space. Right. So it's a very unique space because I think I might be the only one in it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. You created your own um, niche. I like it. Yeah, I think I'm the only one here. Um, and I've given, you know, talks to some students. I'm like, how how has no one joined this yet? I've been doing this for over a decade, like it's a dozen years now. What I did was I took my brain science and went into skincare and beauty. And at that time, there was nothing about the brain when you looked at a product that was for your face. Um, but we changed that and we added, you know, the component of stress and the and the physiology of it, most importantly, and like how psychological stress has an effect on your skin, you know, and also on all of the inflammatory skin diseases, acne, psoriasis, eczema. Um, these are dermatological conditions psych that psychological, you know, stress affects, whether it's making it worse or actually triggering it. Um, you know, psoriasis can be triggered by a stressful event in adult life or eczema can be triggered by a stressful or traumatic event. Um, it has to be kind of in your genes probably, but then the, the trigger is stress. And so it opened up a whole field um, in skincare of products that were delivering, you know, solutions for these kinds of situations where you have to really calm the skin. Um, and so then I worked a lot in skin and I, I left to kind of expand into all of wellness because I, I had done so much. I did all the inflammatory skin conditions. I taught all over the world. Um, I traveled all over the world. I was launching skincare products. We were creating them with R&D team. Um, and I just wanted to do something, you know, more, I guess. And so then I went and did a lot of work up in like Silicon Valley, just absorbing all of the, the latest science that was happening there. And I worked in all of wellness from there. I worked with a company called Headspace. I was a resident neuroscientist um, trying to explain to the consumer, what is mindfulness and what is meditation? You know, like how does it work in the brain and why, why is it different than just what you might've heard of from like a religious perspective? Right. Um, and, and so again, like then that world kind of exploded like the mindful world um and you know now i'm an advisor and i work with different companies that um are trying to make an, a difference and you know i have a because i have the luxury of of choosing who i work with um so i i choose companies that are trying to do good in the world um and also a sustainable solution so you know whether that's in skin or whether that's in other areas, like I'm working in sound and sound wellness, I'm working um, in, in even like hotels. And so like, what can resorts do to provide programs that are going to be, you know, beneficial for people outside of like the clinical world um, and other new startups that are done really well, you know, changing out of like the, the synthetics into herbal plant-based, you know, right. um, medicines and things like that. So that's kind of where I've gone from the lab, from the bench. So I understand that you uh, consult with some of the world's biggest brands. Are you allowed to tell us about some of those brands or maybe a specific initiative that you're excited about that, or that you've worked on? 
Um, yes. So some of them are um, a lot of the, the, the work that I do is on innovation side. So I can't talk specifically about like the innovation, but um, but the areas in general. So like Unilever has so many different brands, obviously, and I've worked with their active cosmetics division and also with L'Oreal, with um, smaller brands, you know, in skincare and 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 also, you know, like the big tech kind of brands like with with Google, with Samsung, with um even like the machines that are made by this company Dyson that's like vacuums, but also I've worked on their hair products. Um, Scalp Care was the latest um, this week. um, I did a talk for Unilever around scalp. And I think in general, scalp care is going to become a new sort of area of, of, you know, beauty that you're going to see. Like you're seeing hair care. You've seen hair care for a long time, but you haven't really seen a lot of scalp care and scalp focused things and so that's a new kind of interesting area that I'm I'm interested in because it's kind of again it's the brain skin thing because especially the last couple of years we've dealt with a lot of stress and so hair loss has been a big huge part of I think a lot of um salons uh, every time I go to a salon they're like oh you know everybody's I see so many people getting extensions and so hair loss is, is, is a big deal um and graying hair and you know the reversibility of that. Um, and, and that I think is, can, huge. It, be re- can it be reversed? Can it be reversed? It, um, yes, to a, to an extent. Yes. The science has shown, and I've personally seen it where a hair that is like dark goes white and then comes back to color. And that's huge because that means that you can do it. You just have to know when to do it and how to do it. And that's the complicated part. <laughs> and so all of this has to do with all of this consulting you have to do ties back to the study of the brain. Um, well, partly, right? So, like, I explain how the brain, what it means to be stressed, and like how psychological stress, which is in the brain, like results in changes in the body. It could be graying hair, it could be hair loss, and so how can we counter that? Um, it's different than hair loss from um, like androgenetic alopecia, which is testosterone like male pattern baldness is the common term for it right so that's different hair loss than stress to hair loss than this hair loss that you find from an illness and so the last thing that i was researching was COVID 19 i've been doing quite a bit of research in COVID 19 just because it's so prevalent and so pertinent so like with covid um the hair loss that people experience is different um, than the hair loss that they would have seen with a different illness and that's it's important because, you know, this happens faster. It happens after a couple of weeks. Normally hair loss happens after a few months. Um, other thing like loss of smell. It's another kind of project I'm working on is like, how does how does COVID lead to loss of smell and how can we fix that? Because, you know, this is off topic, but like people have to live with smelling things like rotting garbage for the rest of their lives and they're suicidal. Like. I can't imagine living like that. So yeah, there's a lot of new issues that have cropped up with COVID. Is COVID causing brain damage? Probably if it's getting into the brain, which it might, which it probably is because the nose is very close to the brain. Um, The, when you experience things like, like, you know, smell loss, it's Uh, a, it is a brain damage. Yeah. That's a form of brain damage, right? No way. Because what's happening specifically is in the nose, you have, you know, your skin, but you also have nervous tissue there. Um, and so when the nerves lose contact with themselves, they cannot communicate back to the brain. Yeah. You know, I used to, years ago, I worked with a woman. She was, um, 
unfortunately she was morbidly obese. She was very, very heavy and, um, you know, really struggled with it for many, many years. And she got in a car accident and, um, had some trauma to the brain and lost her sense of taste and smell completely, never got it back and went from being like 400 pounds to like a stick. I mean, you would not believe. Oh. And I remember talking to her about it because I hadn't seen her in a few years. And she was telling me that I was just like, I could not believe what I'd seen. And, you know, the story of how she had gotten there. And so, you know, I asked her like, which life did she like better? And she definitely liked her former life better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, she just said life without taste and smell was like so, so sad and not rewarding and fulfilling, but just showing how powerful that, you know, what the brain can do and how important those functions are in your life. Yes, definitely. It's again, it's that like, it's not just the feeling of things. It's like it enriches us to to go and taste beautiful things and experience beautiful things. At the, at the end of the day, like that was my, the point of my talk that we've mentioned a couple of times was beauty. Like what is beauty? Like I'm not talking about physical beauty. I'm talking about sensorial beauty that feeds your soul. That's where music comes in. That's where good food comes in. That's where a good conversation comes in with like friends and that feeling of like being loved and you know all of that like that is the nourishment that you know we all thrive on and hopefully we can get to it be, being in this world where we're more disconnected every day you've mentioned the word soul a few times is the idea of a soul scientific it's such a fascinating question it's not it's it's controversial so do i believe in like a physical soul that like leaves I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't, but maybe, um, you know, just gets into the whole area of like spirits. I'm like, I've never seen one. I'm not saying that people that see them are crazy either. And I know that there's energy there, obviously, but, um, what I mean is, yeah, there is something in there. Um, there's something, and I don't know that it's like its own ethereal body, but I think it's just how we, put everything together maybe yeah. and um yeah so there isn't like a scientific like I think there's people trying to study it for sure in your career you know what has been one of your biggest you know snags or biggest hurdles for you to overcome um I mean I think this last couple of years has probably been one of the biggest snags for me personally because my career started at the beginning of like the um the recession so I never experienced the drawback of the depression because that's when I got my first real job um, and it, went, it was great. <laughs> and, um, and ever since then, you know, I've, I've been just doing my own thing and consulting and advising and um, doing a lot of work that I wanted to do. But it's been the, the blow of a combination of new motherhood plus pandemic parenting. And that's changed everything for me. And and it's it's changed everything it's changed the goals it's changed like how i work like it actually like you know like can i work um am i ever going to be able to work in the same way may probably not because i used to be in you know i'd be in turkey or something I'm like oh i'm just going to take another week and hop over to you know morocco or greece and i just I can't see myself doing that anymore <laughs> so this is i think this is the biggest snack so far all right. Well, I think you have answered all of my questions. What I have next are just some quick rapid fire questions just for you to just answer in one sentence, just the first thing that comes to your mind. 
Um, okay. So tell me, um, Claudia, what, you know, what professionally keeps you up at night? Professionally, um, is information and disinformation. So for me, it's being able to get the word out, the truth out and, and countering a lot of the misinformation out there. And if you could completely switch careers and do something non-related, what would you do? I mean, this is hard because I feel like I've completely switched up my careers a lot, you know, going from the bench in a lab to to speaking publicly to, um, I guess, uh, I don't know, I would continue to do this maybe in a, a maybe in a grander scale. That could be cool. Okay. Um, what do you think your greatest strength is? I think it's adaptability. Um, I think it's being shuffled around the world from a young age has taught me to just adapt to my surroundings. And what is your biggest weakness? Um, it's, it's probably, uh, you know, having the stubborn nature that I think I know where this should go and, you know, maybe, maybe expecting people to understand that as quickly. Um, but I, I usually work alone, so it's hard to say. And if you could add one skill set to what you do, what would it be? Like something you wish you could do really, really well? Um, I mean, from a personal perspective, I feel like I, I would love to have some interesting talent, like just be like a singer or something like that. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the most common answer, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Everybody wishes they could sing. It's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> me too I wish I could sing I hate that I didn't get that um that talent or gift um I guess my next question is you know if if there's someone is listening who's interested in this field what is your actionable advice on kind of how to learn more or how to you know kind of move forward with you know taking it more seriously yeah um well definitely take it seriously meaning like if you can go for it, get the full PhD, um, because that's only going to give you a bigger edge when it comes to working in the business world, um, especially when you're not in academia. So stick with it. And, and also just trust your instincts. I think people fall into looking into silos, like this is a position. And so then I should strive to get this position, but like, but no one says that you can create your own position or that you can can create your own title like that's completely doable especially i think this these day this day and age it's a very malleable world we live in and so try to make things your own you know make it your own make it your own niche and just stick with that i love that you have taken what you do and kind of created your own space for it that is like super baller like <laughs> amazing and to your point like it sounds like um, you know, there's lots of room for other people to kind of join you on your crusade and your mission. So for those listening, maybe, yeah. a, yeah, maybe there's a young apprentice out there who, who <laughs> you could meet. Um, what does success mean to you? For me, success means happiness. It means being happy with yourself and your decision, um, whether it's in small little bites or whether it's in a, a grander scheme of things. And, and if you're happy inside, then you have reached a good level of success. Perfect. All right. Well, I think that you have answered all of my questions. Um, I cannot express to you how inspired I am by you and hopefully I did okay asking you questions. Um, love this conversation. So, so interesting and so excited to have you on She Dynasty. Thank you. Thank you.